Welcome everybody to the Massachusetts Sports Betting Special Edition of Conduct Detrimental. I'm your host, Daniel Wallach. With me as always is my uh, co-host, uh, Dan Lust. Dan, how are you today? I am very good. Before we say that it's a Massachusetts special, this is a sports betting special, but we're going to drop you into the heart of what is going on in the Massachusetts State Senate. Because uh, as Dan kind of uh, maybe alluded to, and maybe if you're reading the title of this episode, we have a state senator on Eric Lesser, who has proposed a sports betting bill uh, in the Massachusetts State Senate. So what we want to kind of give to you guys today, Dan, we spend a, basically a piece of every episode. If you look at Dan's Twitter, probably 95% of Dan's Twitter is dedicated to sports betting. And we just kind of want to drop you into this world and, and explain what kind of the intricacies that goes into this bill, why it might take so long, but also, you know, for those that are interested in the college sports world, right, why some state, spending, state sports betting bills don't have that in. And number two, really on maybe a parallel topic, what's taking some of these uh, name, image, and likeness bills so long to get through the state Senate? So who, who better to have on a podcast than a state senator who's having those type of conversations? Yeah, and, and Dan, I mean, he's not just, you know, any senator who's introduced the bill in, Ma in, in the realm of Massachusetts, you know, politics and the state legislature, he's the Senate chair of the Joint Committee on Economic, Economic Development and Emerging Technologies. That's the key committee. That's the gatekeeper for gambling legislation in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And he's arguably the most influential lawmaker on the issue in one of the most sports obsessed states or commonwealths in the nation. I mean, Massachusetts is the home uh, to a number of professional sports teams, college teams. Uh, it, it, it's the birthplace of barstool sports, draft kings. And I think Senator Lesser has devoted a significant amount of time and his staff have devoted a significant amount of time to coming up with an approach that follows some of the best practices uh, that we've seen in other states across the country. So the reason I wanted to have Senator Lesser on is, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the trajectory of sports betting legislation in Massachusetts. And I think his bill or some significant version of it is the one that's most likely to be passed into law. So we had a lot of senators and representatives to choose from. There were 14 bills and, and Governor Charlie Baker introduced his own bill in, in, into the discussion. But I think Senator Lesser is really at the heart of what's happening in the state legislature. And as he goes, most likely the bill or the law will, will follow as well. So I think the ultimate law that's passed by the legislature will probably incorporate a fair number of the concepts that he's introduced in his bill. And let me tell you something, you know, we're now beginning to learn more about him because of sports betting, but he's had a, a really interesting career at the ripe old age of 35. He spent, I think, six or seven years in the Obama White House. He's a double Harvard grad four-term state senator. I mean, he's been at the epicenter of so much, so many exciting developments on our federal and in the state, you know, political landscape. So I'm really excited about having the opportunity to talk to him and really, you know, kind of uh, demystify the process around sports betting legalization in Massachusetts, because we do have a sizable Boston-based audience and we get a lot of questions, or I get a lot of questions about when sports betting will finally become legal in Massachusetts. And I've been wrong three years in a row. I've been making the prediction <laughs> that sports betting will be legal in Massachusetts by the summer of 19. I know. Now I know what your agenda was. Your agenda was to get a Massachusetts State Senator in here and say, you know what? I went straight to the source. So third time's a charm. 
you know, Dan, you mentioned it, you know, among a number of reasons to have, uh, you know, Senator Eric Lesser on, he'll get into it. But again, this is a sports law podcast. We would love to have a lawyer on, right, to talk about these type of issues. So Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law School, obviously very impressive background, and everyone's free to, to read up on him. Someone who you might be hearing from, from a number of years, a name that, that should, you know, not just in the sports betting and not just in the Massachusetts level, but could at some point be going to um, the federal level, being a United States senator. The sky's the limit for someone who uh, maybe just a couple years older than me, Dan, born in 1985. Uh, he'll get into it, ran for public office as a 3L in law school. So as Dan and I try to tell you, the, uh, the world is your oyster, right? You could do anything. You could run for public office, I guess, as a 3L if you're, if you're Eric Lesser. So without further ado, let us jump into the podcast uh, and the interview with Eric Lesser. Welcome to Conduct Detrimental, Senator Eric Lesser. You are our first lawmaker in the history of the podcast to be a guest so welcome to the debut performance of, uh, of lawmakers on Conduct Detrimental. Thanks How are for you? That. Hopefully, I, hopefully I don't come to regret it, but uh, no, I appreciate the leadership uh, and expertise you've, you've both shown uh, in this space. So yeah, happy to be on. Massachusetts has been a pet uh, project of mine. I've been following it so closely going back to 2019. You, you, had, you had a dozen bills in 2019, 14 bills this year. The Commonwealth leads the country in sports betting bills. And I've been uh, sort of vocal and outspoken about predicting that Massachusetts was going to be one of the first states to legalize sports betting. And now it looks like it's gonna pick up the rear a little bit and be among the last 25 states. Why has the Commonwealth been so cautious about sports betting? Yeah, I think it's a couple things, some uh, sort of specific to Massachusetts and how our kind of lawmaking process works unique to us, and then some just sort of situational issues with the policy. You know, first, what I would say is that the brick and mortar gambling in Massachusetts is relatively new, kind of brick and mortar resort style casinos was the product of a very long, really a decades long debate in Massachusetts. Of course, we border Foxwoods and Mohican Sun in Connecticut. So this had always been a hot topic in the state. In 2011, 2012 or so, uh, the law was passed and the brick and mortar casinos didn't really come online in a very significant way. Uh, until the last few years, Encore in Boston and MGM in Springfield and Plain Ridge, uh, which is a, a little bit south of southeast of Boston. So, you know, I think people were, were frankly, maybe just a little tired with gambling issues uh, after going through that process. And the brick and mortar casinos had really just opened uh, at around the time that PASPA uh, was invalidated. The other thing I would say is, you know, we've got a lot of different stakeholders. We're a sports state, uh, which I think creates a lot of energy and excitement around this topic, but also creates a need to do a lot of deliberation. We've got big, you know, influential universities with big athletic programs. We've obviously got four very high profile sports teams. We have brick and mortar casinos. So there, there is a lot there to, uh, to navigate for lawmakers and a lot to consider. And the other thing I would say is uh, we're a state that really prides itself, I think, on a deliberative kind of, uh, dare I say, even intellectual approach to, to public policy questions. So I think what you saw was all of those issues and all of those considerations really combined to, to the approach really being slower, uh, I think, on purpose uh, than in some other states. You've deliberated for two years. What was the most <laughs> difficult policy issue that you confronted in your deliberation over sports betting? I mean, you could talk about the yeah. 
the horse the, the need to bolster the horse racing industry right how you allocate the mobile skins responsible gambling what gave you the most um i wouldn't say trouble but what what took up a lot of your thinking and how you approach this well, all of that was and is very important. Uh, there was a threshold kind of conversation that had to happen first, which is, is legalizing this activity something the state wants to do uh, or wants to move forward with? I'd point out, you know, 25 states, as you mentioned, have some form of legalization. 25 states, that means do not. Uh, and several states, I think, are probably likely never going to legalize or will not legalize for a very long time. So it's not exactly a slam dunk that everybody would an agreement or is an agreement that this conduct should be legal in the first place. I'd point out the debate over kind of resort style brick and mortar casinos was a, was a heated debate in Massachusetts and it took uh, a long time to, to get there. So there was a kind of threshold and is in some quarters still a kind of threshold decision about whether this is the right thing to do. Ultimately, uh, I think people have really kind of come to the agreement that it is be for a few reasons. One is the, the conduct is widespread. I mean, let's be honest, there, there, there's a very broad black kind of black market or gray market in online and digital sports betting. Uh, and there's always been kind of your, your, your sort of street corner betting, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, that was always illegal and had, and had um, fueled a kind of underground economy. People wanted to see that closed, you know, uh, and, they, and they wanted to see it brought into the daylight. They wanted to see it taxed. Uh, and the other thing I think that you've seen is as states have moved forward with legalization, you've kind of learned uh, how to do it safely uh, and learned what you have to do to kind of keep it manageable. So I think for all those reasons, uh, it's really just kind of become, uh, you know, socialized. Uh, and a lot of people who were maybe very skeptical of it have come to realize that if you put the right protections in place, if you legalize it, if you bring it into the daylight, this is for the vast majority of people, a fun and safe activity that they just want to do with their friends, you know, uh, betting on the Patriots or the Red Sox and are doing it in a, in a totally safe and, uh, and controlled way. So, you know, I think that that was a process in our state uh, of, of and, and it was a process of seeing and learning from the other states that were going before us about what was working and what wasn't. Kind of on that, you, you mentioned and, uh, you know, we had the chance to obviously go through um, the nuances of your proposed bill. Um, and you mentioned this concept, I think is funny, the street corner betting. And I, I don't know, I, I, think, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense why states one by one would like to get it off the street corner and make it a taxable entity, you know, to replace pandemic money or anything else. Dan and I have spent a lot of time on our podcast talking about, uh, in addition to sports betting legislation, uh, the bills to pay college athletes. And I think for some of our listeners, and, um, you know, we have a lot of college students, a lot of law students, a lot of people may be unfamiliar with the process of if everybody wants something to occur, right? People want athletes to get paid. People want sports betting legalized. What is necessarily the hangup in the conversations you're having with other senators? And, um, you know, I, I guess uh, when we were researching it, you know, there's 10 plus bills that are out there in Massachusetts to legalize sports gambling. If you can explain really where your bill differs and really where the, we'll say the time delays are occurring in order to get this done. Yeah, so a lot, a lot, a lot, lot to unpack. The multi-part question there. So first, uh, I'll talk about the timing in a. Full <laughs> I'll talk about the timing in, in a second. But what I, what I'll just first is, you know, our our bill, my bill, uh, does not include college sports. Uh, we knew, and I have eyes wide open, that by excluding college and only allowing betting 
on professional sports, NBA, NHL, MLB, you know, NFL, et cetera, uh, that you were uh, excluding a big portion of the quote, gray market or black market betting market. Obviously we know March Madness, the bowl games for college uh, are, are very big markets, but, you know, ultimately I think a determination was made and I made a determination that, and I would point out that our governor in his bill also excluded college, uh, but that there is really a lot different between professional sports and college sports. Uh, and we could get into a long conversation debate about all of that, but you know, professional athletes are paid, college athletes are not. Professional athletes are in unions and are you know, under collective bargaining agreements where rights are protected, college athletes aren't. There's an infrastructure now forming and being built around professional sports to ensure that betting is done in a safe way and that players and, and uh, consumers are protected. You don't have that same infrastructure with colleges. And, you know, the leagues at this point, the professional leagues are telling us that they are ready for and want betting. And the college teams are telling us that they don't want it. Absolutely not. So, you know, given Given that, uh, we felt it was, you know, I felt like let's get it started with professional sports. Let's see how it goes. You can always revisit it down the line. But I do have concerns about, you know, 18 year old, 19 year old kids that don't, you know, necessarily have that infrastructure around them. They're not getting paid, you know, now having, you know, now having a, a betting environment on a college campus that, you know, could, could create a lot of problems. And that was the feedback that the schools gave us, the D1 schools in Massachusetts uh, gave us also. Because I, I gave you, I know I gave you a multiple part there and you answered the important part, why college, you know, why college athletes, um, you know, weren't, weren't involved in that, the college betting sphere. I guess the other part, which, which I find fascinating, I think if you were to pull someone in Massachusetts, right, they would say, I want to bet right now. I don't care what the bill is. Right, right. <laughs> now, what would be, and, and again, this um, just for, for our listeners, can you kind of explain the complications that goes into, you know, which bill do we pick? And why this, yeah. why this could be taking so long? Because I think that's a, a mystery to a lot of people, right? If everybody agrees, hey, this thing, we should, we should be able to bet on sports. You know, what, what goes in the room? What's the time frame to kind of get a bill passed in Massachusetts? Yep. Yeah, so it's a good question. So first, you know, there's 200 members of the legislature. Uh, there's 40 members of the Senate. There's 160 uh, members of the House of Representatives. Uh, we tend to want to build consensus, especially around issues like this. Uh, this is probably not something that people are going to want to ram down legislators' throats without a process and without some broad-based support. I, I'd point out, too, the ultimate policy is going to be stronger the more uh, voices are included and the more broad the support is. And, you know, well, <laughs> to be frank, I mean, well, I think people are excited about betting on sports. This is not what is keeping people up at night in our state right now. I mean, we've got big issues with COVID-19. Schools are still not fully reopened. You know, we've got major challenges with transportation, with housing. Yes, this is something I think we want to see or I personally want to see happen. Yes, it will create some economic benefits. But I think you've got, there's a process of moving it from a kind of abstract issue of interest to one of really urgent concern that moves it to the top of the line in the legislature's agenda. And that just wasn't going to happen last year during COVID-19 and during with everything else 
um, that policymakers were, were faced with, and I think probably rightfully so. You know, now that we've moved into a place, hopefully, of, of rebuilding and, and kind of growth moving out of COVID, there's going to be more oxygen and more space for, you know, discussions around, around sports betting. And, you know, I, the other piece of this is, you know, Massachusetts has a relatively stable and strong, I don't want to over, overdo it here, but a relatively stable and strong state fiscal picture. You know, we have a, a large rainy day fund and sports betting, while it would be helpful to the state's budget, is not going to be some game changer for the state's finances. So just as an example, uh, the governor's uh, budget proposal estimated that for the full year, legalized sports betting would bring in about $35 million for the state in state revenue. To put that in perspective, our state lottery collects a billion dollars a year uh, and our brick and mortar casinos collect about $20 million a month. So the scale is, is not even close to uh, comparable. And we also do have a state income tax. So, you know, we don't need to do it to balance the state's budget. We shouldn't do it to balance the state's budget. Obviously it would help, uh, but it, 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 there are some important social consequences that need to be front of mind first. And I think that's the thought process that the legislators have gone into it with. Senator Lesser, I was about to ask you about the tax rate, but I want to pick up on your last comment about social consequences. You know, in my, in my field, in my, in my work, I, I look at sports betting bills in every state around the country and yours, and I'm not trying to, you know, over compliment you, but yours addresses Okay, I, I am trying to compliment you. Your bill addresses responsible gambling and problem gambling in a more meaningful way than I've seen in any state bill across the country. You've got earmarks, you've got credit card bans, you've got committee that's going to be formed to study uh, the issue. Can you tell us? Uh, I mean, we obviously know that this is an important issue uh, in Massachusetts and, and the rest of the country, but what, you know, what was top of line thinking? For you and yeah. coming up with all these different provisions, which go, in, in my view, go, go considerably further than any bills I've seen in any other state legislature. Yeah. So again, kind of talking about kind of conceptually how I view, view this from the beginning. I mean, again, the vast majority of people are doing this for fun. They're going to have a great time. They're just hanging out with their buddies. It's a, so it's a game, right? It's just, and they're, and they're, they're going to be able to bet with no problem, but, you know, as a progressive and someone who cares about equity, uh, there are going to be people and there are people who have, you know, real trouble uh, and, or might be targeted or taken advantage of because of an addiction or because of some other issue. And that was very important and is very important for our caucus in the state Senate. And it was something I heard loud and clear from my fellow legislators when we were having conversations about this bill uh, and about legalization. This would be a significant expansion of gambling uh, in this in our state in a way that we haven't seen in a while. So I think people are ready to do it. They acknowledge that it can be done safely, but we need those safeguards in place. So, you know, for example, the credit card ban, I, I personally feel strongly about because you know, I don't want to see a situation where somebody who has an issue, somebody who, you know, gets caught up in the moment, all of a sudden finds himself with tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt that they're not going to be able to pay off in any real way for the foreseeable future. That to me feels like it's taking advantage of people uh, and doesn't move the game forward and doesn't and doesn't and it no longer becomes fun for people. So, you know, a debit card or a, or a, or a sort of drawdown account system where you can limit 
you know, how, how deep in people get, you know, that feels, that feels fair. But, you know, we felt very strongly about this and we were informed in it by our experience with the 23K debate, which was the debate over brick and mortar. Uh, we have some of the most aggressive uh, and, uh, gambling addiction and sort of safe gambling practices really of any, any state anywhere in the country that was put in place. I was not there during the debate. I wasn't in the legislature yet, but that was a precedent that was set from that brick and mortar legalization for traditional resort style gambling. And I think we really heard loud and clear from people. We wanted those protections in place, you know, for sports betting also. The other side of the coin is the economic, you know, upside associated with sports betting. I think so much of the focus of, you know, analysts in the industry is, you know, how many mobile skins are there going to be, licensing fees, tax rates. We often kind of subordinate the responsible and problem gambling aspect when it's probably the most important consideration. But on the issue of the tax rate, you mentioned how Massachusetts is on pretty solid financial footing as compared with, let's say, a state like California that had, has a budget deficit of $54 right. billion. Yet your bill proposes one of the highest tax rates and licensing fee structures in the country. And I, I know recently Governor Mario, uh, not Mario, Governor Andrew, <laughs> yeah. I proposed competitive bidding for the mobile licenses and your, your next door neighbors in Rhode Island and New Hampshire have a lottery operated model uh, that went out to competitive build, bidding that resulted in a winning bid or, or, or a contract award to the vendor that agreed to pay 50 or 51% of the revenues. Right. So can you talk about how much what's going on in the neighboring states uh, has influenced uh, your economic policy around sports betting? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, the tax rates are admittedly going to be a little bit of a moving target based kind of on feedback we get. But what I would say is, so the rate we have in my legislation is 20% for brick and mortar, 25% for mobile only. Uh, the reason we have that split rate was an acknowledgement that the brick and mortar casinos did put substantial kind of boots on the ground investment in these communities. And uh, the type of betting that would happen in person, you know, at a sports bar, at a restaurant, you know, you're, you're employing waiters and waitresses, bartenders, cleaning crews. There's just a, a kind of broader economic footprint for the activity than the purely online uh, digital version. So that's the reason for the split rate there. If you look at the 20 and 25% rate, as you kind of mentioned, Dan, it, it actually is about in the middle of the proposal of the, of the various sort of 25 states that have already come online. New Jersey and Nevada are really outliers. They're among the lowest. You mentioned New Hampshire is 51%. Rhode Island is also much higher than ours. We were trying to strike a balance here of creating some level of competitive, uh, you know, of, of a competitive uh, environment with skins, but not a crazy number, right? And an open license process, but again, not an open-ended license process. At the same time, a tax rate that was basically in the middle and what I would say is my bill also of the 14 or 15 or so in the state that have been filed, my tax rate and our, my licensing uh, fees are again about in the middle uh, of where the various in-state proposals have been. So it's going to be a bit of a moving target, uh, but what we were trying to do is reconcile both the need to create a very comp as competitive and open a market as we can to, to create a good product for people, but also uh, making sure that we're only really having established players in the market, you know, who, who have the financial wherewithal to balance these bets and to make people whole. And also that the, 
acknowledging that this was an activity that was illegal for a long time, now is going to be legal. We've got to make sure that there's a tax rate that appropriately prices that risk for the state. So Senator Lesser, I, I had a, you know, I'm just kind of following up on something you said earlier, which I, I think is interesting for people to understand. I know in different states, right, there are bills that incorporate being able to bet on the NCA, being able to bet on March Madness. You had made a comment earlier that at least in the way within the state of Massachusetts, the colleges maybe there aren't in support of betting on NCA sports. Is that unique to Massachusetts? Am I hearing that right? Or is that more of an issue naturally? My sense is, I mean, you would know this better than me, but because I'm very focused on Massachusetts, for sure, the, the D1 schools in Massachusetts are, are just absolutely against and they've been very public about that. They've issued multiple public statements, public letters saying that they're against any any legalization whatsoever. Uh, my sense is, is nationally, the NCAA and national schools are also not big fans. I know that states have addressed this in different ways. Some states have allowed college uh, other states like New Jersey have said no betting on college teams in the state. I think as more states come online, especially big states with, you know, big college programs and big sports programs, New York, you know, let's see what happens in California. Uh, you, you, you might see this addressed in different ways. But, you know, we kind of heard loud and clear from people and, and again, from members of my caucus that there were concerns about with all the other issues we have in college sports right now, you know, adding this on top of that, uh, on top of that is it was going to be problematic. Would you consider a carve out for something like the NCAA men's basketball championships in, uh, in March? That's the single largest bettable event in North America. And the way a lot of other states, as you noted, have yeah. addressed college betting bans is to exclude or prohibit betting on uh, in-state colleges. Right. Collegiate games taking place within the state. And New Jersey is already having some post-purchase uh, regret over that. And now they're going to try to amend the constitution one more time to eliminate a men's basketball tournament where the games are played at the highest you know, level of competition. And most of the games, if not all of the games, take place outside the state. Is, is, that, an, right. is that one carve out that you, you might consider? I won't pre-negotiate the bill, obviously, but uh, you know it's an it's an open process, and we're we're going to have a, a a major kind of process of every of all of our sort of members of our of the legislature having their say. I would point out that our rules in the Senate allow any senator to file amendments on anything uh, and to have an up or down vote on each one of those amendments. So. I've certainly heard about, and I'm familiar with what New Jersey has done and with, with some other states. I do think this is a bit of a moving target. It's, it's really about protecting people. That's what I'm focused on. I wanna make sure that players uh, are protected and that, and that fans and consumers are protected. And I think people intuitively understand that a March Madness game is different you know, than a different type of team or a different type of sport that doesn't have the same scrutiny or the same attention on it. Uh, so I think, you know, we'll, we'll engage with that as the process moves forward. But I think the rationale behind, at least right now, uh, not including college is let's get the, let's get the pro sports market, which is the most developed market up and running. This is kind of to Dan's question earlier about the speed issue, right? You know, I would rather see us get something going that's, you know, a little bit more constrained so that at least we've gotten started rather than continue to delay making the perfect the enemy of the good. I guess uh, in the limited time we have, um, you know, we, we kind of buried the lead. In addition to having you on here for talking about sports betting, you're also a, a JD, a graduate of Harvard Law School, and this is a sports law podcast where we most of the time have lawyers on to talk about sports issues, uh, myself and Dan, but sometimes we have media people on. Here we have uh, you, Senator Lesser, with a JD, and obviously, uh, you know, a very impressive background. And again, I mentioned we have a lot of people that tune in or are trying to 
you know, be abreast of sports issues to kind of make a path into sports. Now, you have an interesting path because, you know, you're in politics, but you're very clearly in this sports lane. Can you kind of talk a little bit about uh, what I call these kind of like maybe these decision trees in life, how you ended up choosing a political path where you could have gone in any number of directions? Great question. I mean, for me, it's really always been about kind of helping people. Uh, the, the first uh, time I got involved in politics, I was uh, 16 years old. I was a junior at Longmeadow High School in, in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And I remember the principal gathered us all together and announced that a whole group of teachers at our high school were going to get laid off because of budget cuts that had been made at the state house. And I remember, you know, being 16 and just feeling really angry, you know, that 14 and 15 and 16 year olds were being asked to pay the price for you know, decisions that have been made somewhere else. So got involved, we did something in Massachusetts called a proposition two and a half override, which allowed for a, uh, basically an override of the of the budget decision to cut, uh, to cut the education funding. And I remember uh, getting involved in that and watching uh, the pink slips of the teachers get ripped up after that uh, override passed. And so I felt lucky that as a 16 year old, I got to see that despite the messiness and the frustrations of the political process, you know, it really does remain one of the most powerful ways to make a difference. And uh, from there, I got I got wrapped up with the Obama campaign in 2007 and 2008. I had the honor of working for him for about four years, came back to Massachusetts for law school. And uh, I, I first ran for office when I was a 3L. <laughs> for law students that might be listening, uh, your 3L year is like a little bit of a eh, year. I mean, you can you can do other stuff. I run for political offices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but um, but I got I will say, I mean, the law degree has been very helpful on this topic in particular, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance here and there's a lot of different layers of law. And because of the federal because of PASPA, because of the Wire Act issues, you know, there's a lot of intersection between federal and state law that, uh, that makes the topic just really stimulating, uh, you know, from a legal perspective, not just from a sort of sports and entertainment perspective. You took a, a major leap of faith in your career. You were 40 steps away from the Oval Office, as your biography uh, points out, yet in the middle of President Obama's second term, you ran for office. How difficult was it to pass up the adrenaline rush <laughs> of being so close to President Obama, the Oval Office, and being able to you know, finish the business or finish what you started because you had one of those rare opportunities uh, to be part of the inner sanctum of the White House. What led you to make the move when you did? Well, it was a thrilling time, and I was there for the for the first two years. Uh, you know, working in the West Wing for David Axelrod, who was the president's senior advisor. We had a small office about forty feet, as you said, from the front door of the Oval Office. And uh, you know, but for me, I really, um, you know, I was attracted to work for President Obama because of his history as a community organizer, because of the work he had done in Chicago. I actually, in many respects, felt a lot of commonality to that with the work I had done in my hometown in Western Mass, you know, working with those teachers so many years ago. So to me, I actually really viewed the community-oriented work as an extension of Obama's mission and of his vision. And uh, it was it was definitely hard to, you know, to turn down the chance to go back to Washington or to go to a, you know, a big, a big white shoe law firm. I'd certainly be making more money uh, doing that option. But I was always really attracted to, to community-oriented work. And, you know, aside from sports betting, I, I've gotten to do a lot of work in the community where I grew up that really in Massachusetts has been frankly kind of invisible uh, to decision makers on, on Beacon Hill. Massachusetts is a kind of unique state in the sense that the political center, the economic center, the population center is all in one place. So, you know, 
Boston doesn't have a great reputation in terms of keeping an eye on what Western Mass needs. So the chance to be able to kind of give voice to my community on things like infrastructure and job training and substance abuse advocacy um, has really been a great experience. What Boston doesn't have is the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. Have you exactly, ever yeah. <laughs> have you been to the Hall of Fame? I wanted so badly to go when my favorite player of all time, Bernard King, was inducted around 10 years ago, but I'm embarrassed to say I've never been to the Basketball Hall of Fame, which is probably five minutes from your uh, Not even. Office. When you come, let me know and we'll, we'll grab lunch or we'll, we'll grab a beer or something. And uh, I'd also point out we have the Volleyball Hall of Fame right in, in Holyoke, which is about 15 minutes north. So you got Volleyball Hall of Fame in Holyoke, Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield. It's like we got our own sports mecca here. Final quick question, turning it back to sports betting, can you give us uh, some projection of, of the calendar here? I know every bill gets a hearing and there were yep. hearings two years ago. Is this on path to be legalized by the summertime and can Massachusetts residents expect if things you know, go on the path that you anticipate that they'll be able to place bets within the state uh, in time for week one of the NFL regular season in September or, 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 or alternatively when the Red Sox are in the World Series. <laughs> right. I like your positive thinking. So, oh, we won't go there. Yeah. I, uh, I, what I'll say is, you know, I don't, I don't set our calendar, you know, the legislative calendar is set by the Senate president and the speaker. But what I would say for people who are kind of following this at home, uh, we go out of session historically July 31st. We typically don't come back into session uh, until about Labor Day or, or a little bit after Labor Day uh, in the fall. So we would need this to get done before July 31st. The most likely way to do that would be including it in the state's annual budget. That's what the governor did. He included uh, sports betting in his budget proposal. It then goes to the House, which does their version in April. The Senate does their version in May. They get reconciled in June. It's signed by, by early July. So that timeline would, would allow uh, then for implementation to happen in July and August. It would be ready for, for the NFL season. So that would probably be the path if people were focused on getting this done in time for football season. There are other ways to do it. It could be a standalone bill. Uh, it could go through the kind of normal uh, committee process, but those often take longer uh, and, and might not allow it all to get done before uh, the NFL season starts. So I would, I would, people should keep an eye on whether or not it's being included in the budget. Senator Lesser, I can't thank you enough for joining us today on Conduct Detrimental. It was fun. Uh, Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, we could have you back every week. I mean, I mean, we devote one week to one bill. I mean, we've got 14 bills, so we could probably kind of go through them over yeah. the next two and a half, three months. It's like a problem one. set for, uh, yeah, for law school. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to give any of your other uh, competing bills any airtime, so don't worry. We're <laughs> Senator Lesser. Sounds good. Thank well, you thanks for having me. for coming on. We really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Take care. Thank you, Senator. Have a great rest of the day. And uh, I enjoyed the conversation. So that was Senator Eric Lesser. Dan, I, I thought it was a great conversation. What do you think? He was very eloquent and informative and was real good give and take on so many of the, the key issues around sports betting, as well as his own you know, career. Uh, I felt like this was uh, one of the best interviews and conversations you know, we've had on Conduct Detrimental. And uh, I was excited about having a chance to get into it a little bit with him. And I thought it went exceptionally well. He's certainly given us now a timeline to look for, or at least to follow in the trajectory of the sports betting bill.
in the Massachusetts legislature. And I mean, he said it right at the end that if all goes according to plan, uh, this thing will become legal before the end of July with the expectation that it will be implemented in time for the NFL season. I mean, I'll believe it when I see it, but the Massachusetts legislature has been very, I wouldn't say the Massachusetts Gaming Commission has a reputation of, of being very proactive and I would expect their regulations to follow pretty swiftly following the authorization of sports betting. So I would say, you know, September, October-ish is probably uh, sort of the dividing line of when you should expect to be able to place the first bet in Massachusetts. So it was all in all a very informative interview. And uh, I learned a lot about what will be happening uh, over the course of the next few months. So Dan, you know the expression, just, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. We've had now back-to-back weeks, Dan. We had an NHL story dealing with Russia, okay? And then we had a Massachusetts State Senator. You were trying to miss a couple of these episodes, Dan, and now we got you right in your wheelhouse, okay? We have these perfect episodes. We're going to keep them rolling, Dan. We're going to go one, one after the other. What's, what's your ideal net episode for number three? Should we have Tom Brady on here for deflating? Yeah, anything, my ideal episode is any, any episode where we have a guest that does all the heavy lifting. I mean, I, we have to prepare for the interview, and but good guests make for great episodes. Credit for heavy lifting purposes. You did a lot of heavy lift there. Those are some very intricacies of this Massachusetts State Bennett. That's, it's, this is your jurisdiction over here, but I'm happy to, to ride your court to coattails on the heavy lifting now. Well, well that, that's why it's so much more fun to have a conversation, a give and take not just with you, but with our guest, rather than just kind of, you know, vocalizing into, into space and, and, and giving my opinions for five minutes or 10 minutes. It's so much fun to be able to talk to a newsmaker or a writer or, you know, journalist covering a story and kind of dig into the, you know, dig into the story a little bit deeper and, and, and learn a little bit more about what's going on and do less of the opinion giving and more of the listening and trying to uh, divine some insights from our guests as to what's going to happen. So that's my perfect episode, whether it's Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, uh, Senator Eric Lesser, uh, or, or a different lawmaker. Having guests and having really smart guests who are newsmakers, I mean, that's sort of the gold standard, and I think we achieved that today. Well, uh, that'll put this episode in the books. As always, Dan Wallach is on social media at Wallach Legal, myself at Sports Law Lust, and the show, Conduct Detrimental, again, now on TikTok of all places. Um, and that being said, we'll put this episode in the books, and we'll see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Conduct <laughs> Detrimental.